Okay, now, um, Ella, did you want to go first? Sure. Go first here. Okay. Yeah, we'll get you. We'll get you. Let's um, when did you come to the yeah. Now, does anybody else here have a PowerPoint? Hello? No. Okay. Who knows how to walk the PowerPoint? January 2008. And Robert came out. Yeah. Of course, I've seen news coverage, but I've never saw you. You don't need it. Because I've quite some years. Yeah. Okay. Are we ready to go? Yes, uh, I have a question. What time is this, uh, this panel session going to end? How do you want to end? So you have exactly an hour. One hour. Okay. So I'm Don Ferenz. I'm the facilitator, uh, which is great because I know very little about the topic. All I know about media is I was told as a child, don't believe everything you read in the paper. <laughs> but I do believe everything I read in WikiLeaks, especially what they said about the Chilcott Commission inquiry already being fixed even before it started. Maybe some of you read that. Anyway, it's my pleasure to let the panelists introduce themselves. But we've got Ella McPherson, and she will say what she wants to say about herself. We've got Nirma Jelicich. Uh, Jelicich? Well done. Yeah. Well done. She's well done. I knew she was well done. And I'm, I'm And I'll let them say what they want to about themselves, and I'll get out of the way. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here today. It's been fascinating so far, and we're only sort of one-eighth of the way into it. Um, I'm Ella McPherson. I'm a department of sociology at Cambridge. Um, and I research, I'm currently researching social media and human rights and how it changes how um, human rights are reported and who gets to speak on human rights issues. Um, and, you know, key to human rights reporting is this idea of evidence, right? Whether you're thinking about human rights reporting in terms of advocacy or in terms of courts. Um, what social media has done has one of the things it has done is introduce new channels of evidence. Potential evidence, I should say. Um, so what I'm going to do right now, just to kind of illustrate this point, and to get at what I want to talk about today, which is what I call the verification problem, I'm going to give you three stills from YouTube videos, um, which are all have been kind of caught up in uh, discussions around, um, you know, human rights discussions around whatever happens behind these videos. So I'll just show you quickly because, of course, anytime you're showing this kind of footage, it is graphic and, anyway, it's about human rights violations. So anyway, this is um, from, um, it's, it's horrifying footage of the aftermath of the 2013 chemical attacks in Ghouta, Syria. Um, and um, that came out after the attacks and um, there was a big controversy, you probably heard of it, um, which is that the Russia, Russia's foreign ministry claimed that this, these videos were fake, that they were propaganda created by the Syrian rebels. And this was because the timestamp on these YouTube videos uh, was from the day before the attacks. But this was without understanding that timestamps on YouTube videos come from whatever time it was in California at the time of upload, not the time of the actual video itself. Um, <laughs> then the next one we have here, again, maybe you, you heard of this. This is footage from a video that appeared all of a sudden on YouTube and then went viral last November, and it was called Syria, Syrian Hero Boy Rescues Girl in Shootout. And there's this little boy, and he's running and dodging what looks like sniper fire, and he falls down, he gets back up, he goes and he grabs this girl who's hiding behind a car and drags her basically off scene. Um, it was you know, shared by activists, viewed millions of times, even covered by some mainstream news outlets, and then the BBC uncovered its cinematic origins. Um, this video was a movie 
um, shot as an experiment um, by a Norwegian director using funding from the Norwegian Film Institute and Arts Council Norway. Um, and it was shot um, in Malta on a set used in blockbuster films Troy and Gladiator, using professional child actors and Syrian refugees to provide the running commentary. And then they just released it on YouTube basically to see what happened, right? Um, this um, is a, a, a video of a man who's shackled to a post or a tree being water cannoned by um, other men in uniform. And that one looks real enough um, in the video, but um, the Human Rights NGO Witness did a little piece on this. We can't say for sure, be, uh, because in 2014, it circulated at least three different times with three different sort of framings um, on YouTube, so like in terms of what people were describing it as being. Uh, it was said it was in Venezuela, described as armed forces attacking a student. It was said it was in Colombia, described as Colombian special forces um, water cannoning a farmer who had taken part in an agrarian protest. And it was said it was in Mexico, and that it was police versus a member of a civil defense group. So what these videos do is show us both the pluralism potential of digital human rights reporting from civilian witnesses, so we can gain evidence that we would never have previously had from people we'd never previously have heard from, especially in closed contexts like Syria. But they also demonstrate the great problem of this information, um, that of verification. And the fact is that human rights organizations can't, if they can't verify a piece of information, they can't use it for evidence. Okay? <coughs> and if we're concerned with pluralism and equality of access to professional mechanisms, mechanisms of human rights and traditional justice, verification then becomes a problem. It becomes a bottleneck. Okay, so this, this is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm researching this sort of as we speak, so I'm sort of struggling with how to conceptualize how this problem works. Um, and this is, I won't go too much into this because it starts to get a bit theoretical in terms of Bourdieu, um, but what I do is use Bourdieu's concept of the field to try to plot out how this information moves. Um, so here on the left, you have the field of human rights fact-finding. Um, and this is, you know, the NGOs, for example, are in this field. This is professional fact finders who are trained and who know each other and work together, et cetera. Um, and it's useful to think about this in terms of fields because fields have particular forms of capital. Um, so, for example, we can think of this field of having cultural capital, the knowledge around fact finding methodology, including social media verification. There's a lot of trainings, for example, going on right now in this field in terms of how to process this information. Um, we also can think of fields as being characterized by logics, which are kind of like the rules of the game. So again, this field with respect to information has a logic. And of all the sort of characteristics being looked for in information, a very important one is veracity, which is why verification, kind of the norms and practices of verification is core to the logic of this field. It's not just because you need it to make good evidence, but you also need to have credible evidence to maintain your reputation as a credible organization which is, again, fundamental to the work of human rights organizations. So that's the field. And part of the reason why I like to talk about it as a field is that we can think about civilian witnesses as being kind of in a non-field, which is that thing to the right. That makes sense. Um, and it's not, I'm not saying that all civilian witnesses are in a non-field, um, because, for example, you have at this end activists um, who are sort of a network with NGOs and sort of, you know, they know how to process information, et cetera. But at that end, you have the accidental civilian witness. And these are people who happen to have a smartphone and a social media account, and they're in, um, in the words of um, I think a journalist who's speaking about it, uh, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they document it. 
and they want to share it, right? They want to witness, they want something to happen as a result. Um, the, the problem is, sort of, how this helps us think about ver verification, is that um, the people on the right do not have the cultural capital, they do not have the knowledge to know that these people need verifiable information, and even if they do know that, they don't know what they're looking for, right? Because they've never thought about this in this way before. Um, they also do not have the networks um, to know how to get this information into that field. Um, and as become apparent, it's also they have problems in terms of their own reputations and <coughs> their own sort of um, wealth of public credibility. I'll explain that in a sec. But first, um, I'm going to just explain uh, a bit about verification, how, how it works in the social media space. Um, so. Verification um, in the social media space uh, is still based on the same fundamentals as verification before the social media space, which is that anytime you get information on a human rights violation, you have to identify the content and the metadata, the source, the time, the place of production. And you do this by cross-referencing the information you've gotten with other, method, other methods and other sources. So that hasn't changed. But the tools that we have to do this have changed, as has the content. Um, so I'm just going to run you through a couple of quick examples before getting back to this problem. Um, so for, for the source, right? To get at the source of this information, one of the things you have to do is establish chain of custody back to the original source. Um, especially given that on YouTube it's very common to scrape, so to republish information originally published by someone else, uh, someone else without attribution. And there's these reverse image search engines like Denial you do this. Um, but then you need to check out the source once you get to it. You need to know about the source. What are their motivations? What's their identity? What are, what are their affiliations? Um, where might bias be coming from? Um, Etc. And you can do this via digital footprints. So I did it to myself using people, which is one of um, these kind of, um, it goes into what's called the deep web, which is all these, all these databases online that aren't searchable via Google, but are things like um, uh, court records, publication records, kind of databases related to eBay and Amazon and Twitter and even dating websites, right? So you can put in anyone, you get all kinds of information about them. So here what I just want to show you is that I think I put in my Twitter handle, and it, some of it's not quite right, like I'm not 72 from Illinois in Idaho, um, but then some of it is very right, right? So this was further down. My age, my hometown, where I've lived, that's my mother, my father, my brother, right? Spot on, okay? Um, so that's one way of looking for people and their backgrounds. Um, then another way is this. You guys know what this is? No? Yes? Verified. Yeah, it's a, if this is a blue verification icon on Twitter, okay, which goes next to your name as an indication that Twitter's checked you out and you, says that you are who you say you are, okay? So um, I actually got this from an, a website that teaches you how to fake that, but anyway, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so another, um, so then you can you move on from source, you know who I am, whatever. Um, you need to know about. Um, whether what I'm saying happened when and where I said, and not like that water cannoning video that was kind of repurposed in all these different places, right? Um, so you can look at all kinds of things like the you know embedded data in an image. Um, 
you can, you know, as a source, you can look for indications in the content um, and cross-reference that with other databases like Google Street Maps. And this is an amazing example of what Elliot Higgins, who is one of the experts in this field, the really, really kind of cutting-edge stuff, um, what he calls magic, because it looks like magic. Okay, so he, he and his organization, Bellingcat, are tracking the transit of Russian missiles into Ukraine um, by following images on social media. And I think they, they were, they were um, made aware of this tweet, right? And in this are these, um, what are they called? Um, latitude, yes, thank you. Coordinates, latitude and longitude. So he was able to then go into Google Maps and put those in and looked at little things in the images in the image and found the same on Google Maps. So he said, you know, there's a highway marker in the picture. Yes, I found that on Google Street Maps. Um, there's a telephone pole, I found that. But those are pretty common things, he says. Then he went and looked at the ground <coughs> under the tank and he found a crack in the road, which he then matched to a crack in the road that he saw on Google Street Maps. Led him to believe that actually this is where the person said it was, right? So that's just this little sort of snapshot of how this process works. You can see it can be very time intensive. Um, and that's going to get us back to this problem of the verification barrier, okay? So you can see, just from what I've been saying, that verification and pluralism are intention, are, are intention, especially because there's a limited amount of time to process this information. Not everyone's human rights information becomes evidence. Not everyone who's going on social media and, and, and documenting or denouncing a violation then gets access to the institutional mechanisms of human rights and transitional justice. And the thing is, and the key point here, is that it's unequal in terms of who can get their information from there into that field, into the fact-finding field. Um, like I said, civilian witnesses with cultural capital about verification know how to embed metadata and can make their information easier to verify. Civilian witnesses with symbolic capital in the form of well-established and networked digital footprints make it easier for fact-finders to identify and evaluate the source and therefore make their information easier to verify. Like, I bet if I documented something, they went on people, they saw Cambridge, they would believe me, right? Um, at least more likely to believe me than a random person with no affiliations. Um, let me just get back to that blue badge. So, no one really knows how the verification process works at Twitter, but they put up this nice little frequently asked questions page to kind of um, address some of the most common um, concerns they must hear. Uh, what kind of accounts get verified? Highly sought users in music, acting, fashion, government, politics, religion, journalism, media, sports, business, and other key interest areas. We do not accept requests for verification from the general public. Um, so what that does is show you that the verified badge, which is a kind of verification shortcut, is allocated to those of us with the most financial, symbolic, political, and cultural capital, right? Um, so, um, getting back to the theoretical way to understand this is that we can think about the ability to get information from there to there as um, after Gandhi, who, who has a concept of information subsidies, a kind of verification subsidy, um, namely strategies that can make my information easier for you to use. And Gandhi has this economic metaphor of information subsidies, which I think is so useful because it connects for us how the ability to provide information subsidies is correlated to your levels of capital in its various forms, right? 
Um, so the caveat here, of course, is that social media information is by no means the only or the main source of evidence in human rights reporting. <coughs> On-the-ground investigations, I would say, are still the gold standard. But in the context of human rights organizations' limited time and resources, a major concern for me, again after Gandhi, is that it's those who can best provide verification subsidies who may be most likely to gain access to the human rights mechanism if time is of an issue, right? And actually, it's often those with the least resources who most need this mechanism. Uh, and I'm going to end on a development in this area, which I'm finding very interesting, uh, which is this kind of thing, which I call a third-party verification subsidy. Um, and I don't normally, I'm normally quite skeptical of sort of technological solutions to human problems, especially problems about inequality, but I wonder if this might be a step in that direction. Um, these are apps, they're called um, what um, Sam Gregory of Witness calls eyewitness apps or platforms. And basically what they do is you can go into it and then you can, it automatically embeds all of this metadata, makes your information really rich and easy to verify. Um, and it also takes away the need for you to have a strong digital footprint because it can say, instead of saying this is from this person, it can say this is from this phone and it has not been tampered with. Okay, so. I think there's promise here for um, dealing with the kind of pluralism and verification tension in these new technologies. That's it. Thank you. Okay. I think we'll just stop. Yeah. Well, they want to keep it up. Okay. So, Nirma, yes. you're on till 4.15. Oh, lovely. That's good. I can speak from here? Because yes. I don't have a presentation, so, okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Uh, thanks to the organizers for bringing me all the way from lovely Brussels and giving me the opportunity to visit Oxford once again. Uh, we all have biographies in the, uh, in the sheet, so I won't do as Don said and introduce myself fully, but I will just touch upon what I do at the moment to work for a new organization called Commission for International Justice and Accountability, which um, is made up of what I would call, or we call ourselves, self-exiled individuals from international criminal tribunals uh, existing and uh, uh, ones that are winding down already. And uh, the idea that we are trying to pull through is uh, that of building up criminal cases against highly ranked uh, uh, leadership figures uh, in the conflict in Syria uh, on the basis of material documentation and insider evidence produced by the parties to the conflict. But I will not be talking about that as much during this uh, um, presentation. I will, if I get a chance in the 15 minutes, touch upon why we don't focus and don't look into the uh, stories and evidence collected by journalists and uh, media organizations as a separate entity in Syria and what kind of evidence we focus on in building those uh, cases. Suffice to say that we completed first of these uh, um, three cases uh, uh, focusing on and applying the standards of investigations and evidence uh, uh, that would be applied at the ICC in order to uh, make these cases admissible. But pr before I was doing this, I was working at the ICTY, the first ad hoc tribunal, as you know, it was set up in 93 as an answer to the ongoing conflict in the former Yugoslavia. 
And uh, that's where I want to start, actually. Uh, you were speaking about the uh, future and the new age technology, and I want to take us back almost a quarter of a century, uh, which is when the role of the media uh, started changing and the questions of uh, uh, the role journalists play and could play in the wider transitional justice uh, uh, area and especially in the criminal justice area. Uh, how that impacts the profession of journalists. I did work as a journalist, as a vice, uh, as by the way, in uh, uh, in the UK uh, in the 90s and up until 2003 when I moved back to the former Yugoslavia where I come from and started a media development organization. So it was. Uh, I was reminded today by an article that uh, a friend of mine, who's a photojournalist from uh, conflict zones, Ron Haviv, uh, appeared in in all places in South Africa. Ron Haviv is a guy who in April 92 entered the city of Vienna with the paramilitary troops of uh, uh, known as Arkham's Tigers and uh, continued to take photos of these paramilitary troops going through this predominantly Muslim uh, town, uh, burning the mosques and uh, taking out uh, obviously civilians and individuals out on the street and uh, basically execute beating them up and then executing them. One of those images, or actually two of them, became uh, 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 most famous uh, uh, ones from the conflict in Bosnia, one of a man kneeling down on the street praying for his life and then consecutive uh, uh, line of photographs as he drops dead because the paramilitary just shot him. And then the second one, of course, where uh, the, daughter, uh, the wife and the sister-of-law of the said man who came to help him were also shot by the same paramilitaries. But what was missing at that time, and at this time there was no international tribunal in existence, remember, uh, what was missing at that time was obviously he had in the frame and on his film, because there was no digital camera then yet, <laughs> Uh, photographs of the crime taking place. These people uh, were dead, but he didn't have uh, the picture of the people who were committing the crime. And as if by order, one of the soldiers came nonchalantly <coughs> with his uh, sunglasses perched on top of his head, white sunglasses, and a cigarette in one hand, uh, automatic gun in a rifle on another, and kicked the body of the dead uh, um, woman. And there was his final frame. All of these images ended up being used in, used in, a consecutive, in consecutive trials uh, in the ICTY many, many years later because Arkan, who was the leader of these paramilitaries, was indicted by the ICTY but never was uh, apprehended or put on trial due to the fact that he was killed in the lobby of Hotel in Belgrade due to some other dodgy connections with organized crime, as you often find them uh, between war crimes and organized crime uh, uh, fields. So Ron Haviv never appeared to testify, but his photographs were used uh, as evidence in uh, some of the trials. A few months later, that same year, so we're still in 92, and there's still no digital media, there's still no trial, uh, there's still no tribunal, let alone trial. A few months later, in August 92, a bunch of... Um, uh, British journalists, actually two, uh, one TV crew and one uh, newspaper, managed after weeks of uh, pestering to gain access to uh, uh, what, was what were rumored to be uh, detention camps for the civilians 
civilian population in northwestern Bosnia, so completely other part. Uh, ITN and The Guardian, uh, Penny Marshall and uh, uh, Ed Valnami were the journalists, entered into uh, two camps on that day and uh, proceeded to interview the detainees, who obviously couldn't tell them much because they were very afraid, but also the images that they took spoke much more than the detainees could. And one of the images that, again, ended up uh, uh, symbolizing the war in Bosnia and actually moved the international community into doing something other than the intervention, which was not acceptable at the time, was the one of emaciated man, Fikret Alic, behind the barbed wire with his ribs showing uh, in that August sun of 92 in Prijedor. And it is often said that these images and the uh, reactions from the international audiences and the public, which I very often uh, compare to the reactions that you have now to Syria, and, and which are considerably fewer and smaller and uh, less uh, uh, audible than we had during Bosnia. Uh, these reactions are said to have pushed the international community into uh, discussing what should be done to address all of these crimes that were being reported by the media, by the Commission of Inquiry, or the Commission of Experts that was uh, set up by the UN, etc. And uh, ICTY was established by the resolution, which was uh, unanimously voted by the Security Council, which is a rare thing, as you will know, in May 93, so a few months later. So that's the kind of the start of, uh, of how the media could and did play if you will, a positive role into, uh, in recording and ending up producing the evidence for the trial and the tribunals that they never knew could exist. But fast forward a few years and the trials, uh, um, the court was established and the trials had started. And the question uh, uh, arose about whether journalists who reported so extensively from the wars uh, in the former Yugoslavia uh, should testify in the trials. And this is something I'll speak about, I'll try and focus on it from the media perspective because I'm sure you'll talk about it from the legal perspective because you were at the court at the time and I was in London working as a journalist. But um, uh, it was a question that divided the international media. Uh, um, and I think you could uh, really geographically divide it because the US and the American media predominantly said no journalists should not be compl uh, compelled to testify, and the British media said our duty, here is our chance to do more than be the observers and report on what was going on. Here is our chance to see our reports do something else. Here is our chance to see our reports put bad guys behind the, uh, behind the bars. And, and this, it's, it was a continuation of something, of a, of a debate that was going on still during the conflict in London. As I remember speaking with Martin Bell, whom you will all, or maybe some of you won't remember from the BBC, because some of you are younger, I suppose, he's retired, right? But uh, he was a BBC war correspondent, and he was very often accused of being, it was, a, the term that was coined was journalism of attachment. How do you report uh, uh, either calling in, uh, into question the objectivity of the reports, whether before you testified in the tribunal, but also after you testified in the tribunal. And it was a debate that continued uh, uh, well into this uh, question whether uh, the media or the journalists should be compelled to testify. 
a very good friend of mine who happens to be uh, Ed Valiani, the guy who entered into Amarska in August uh, 92, is uh, what I call a serial witness. <laughs> I think he's testified in uh, seven or eight cases uh, in The Hague uh, by now, and uh, uh, to the detriment of, uh, of himself and his career sometimes. But um, he was very uh, vocal in uh, the duty of the journalist to testify, not only to allow his stories uh, to tell, uh, to, to inform the trials, but also to sit on the witness stand and <coughs> expose himself to the uh, cross-examination, but also open his notebook for the scrutinization of either side uh, to the proceedings, whether it's the office of the prosecutor or the defense. And this is where the key questions, as those of you who study the media, arise. This is why the question of what happens <laughs> with the reports that I do and what happens with the, all the notes and all the knowledge and all the sources that informed my, uh, that informed my story different, different, is different. In principle, uh, ICTY uh, ruled on this matter in uh, two trials, I think, right? Uh, and you will talk about that, so I will not uh, touch upon it, but I think uh, uh, the issue is still open and has been... has. Uh, been brought up again in the cases of uh, uh, Charles Taylor in front, of, in front of the Special Court for Sierra Leone and uh, will probably be raised again uh, and again in front of ICC as the cases touch would come there, but they're not coming yet. <laughs> so that's, um, that's one issue that I wanted to raise and open up for discussion, and that's the role of the international media. But I think something we have to differentiate and uh, what came out from the first panel is uh, how the national media play, uh, what is the role the national media play in uh, the conflict, in uh, documenting the crimes and, uh, and exposing those crimes. And I will leave the Yugoslav example behind because I think a lot has been written about it and I'm sure all of you have read both about Yugoslav media and Rwanda media and the role they played into advancing the nationalism and division and the even sometimes uh, the, the crimes that were committed in these countries. But uh, I'd like to, I was last week in Ukraine working with uh, investigative journalists and uh, something that is a new, uh, a new term in, uh, in the media world and it's called the media activists and I don't quite understand that term because I was brought up and trained by very old-fashioned journalists and I'm not sure that you can be a journalist and an activist at the same time and retain your objectivity and impartiality and everything else. But there you go. So there are, there are old-school investigative journalists sitting with me in Ukraine and the media activists from the new media outlets and orga media organizations that are uh, mushrooming up in Ukraine. Uh, post Yanukovych, uh, uh, Ulster, and uh, and we're talking not only about the reporting on what is going on in the regime change uh, uh, in Ukraine, but also what is going on in the Eastern Front. And the questions keep on coming to me about the crimes that these journalists, who are really, really young, and uh, and keep on going to the conflict zone without any protection behind them. And they say, you know, 
I, I report on what the separatists are doing, what the pro-Russians, etc., etc. But I see more and more what our guys are doing, be it the uh, ordinary, the military structures uh, of uh, or the volunteer guards that have also been established in the uh, Eastern Front. But we choose not to write about it, and uh, and it's what and they ask me, you know, what what would you do? Because we have all this. We have the information, we have the statements, sometimes we have the pictures and the images, but we feel if we write about it, it will demoralize the uh, volunteers, it will demoralize the soldiers, it will demoralize the population which is already you know, going through the serial series of revolutions and uprising and now the annexation of the part of the land, etc., etc. So they self-censor. Unlike uh, the media in the Balkans, where those who wanted to report on the crimes from their own side were often uh, prevented by their editors or publishers from doing so, bar a few examples. Um, uh, these ones are choosing themselves not to publish it and to keep it for the day when it might not damage the society uh, as, uh, as it could now. So, I mean, of course I told them I would publish when they asked, but uh, um, again, it is, these are the questions that the national media ask themselves. So, with Syria, I think in Syria I want to use, and that's my third example, and I'll try to make it quick because I'm already uh, on 15 minutes. Um, what, what has happened in Syria, and I see happening in Ukraine, is you have the international community which is um, trying to learn what is uh, what was missing in the conflicts 20 years ago, and what we di didn't, in quotation marks, we, what we didn't do right in Yugoslavia or in Rwanda, and let's try and rectify it. So one of the things that people now realize that they have forgotten always, in terms of ongoing conflict or later uh, dealing with the past processes, is we need to focus on the media, as we heard in the introductory remarks. Another one is when you get to the criminal, international criminal justice or even national judicial processes, the outreach is the, you know, word is jour. And everyone talks about it, but somehow I keep on seeing it completely misapplied and not having the effect that it should be having um, in a, a, as we imagined it previously. So what you have in Syria is, uh, uh, or around Syria rather, uh, is the same as in Ukraine and you have mushrooming organizations, uh, some of them under the media title, some of them under uh, newspaper title, radio title, some of them under just general NGO title, that the international community in the first years of the war established and uh, or, or helped establish and fund and train to um, act as uh, uh, documenters and collectors of evidence uh, of uh, human rights violations, but also violations of international criminal and humanitarian law. And uh, what happened, because now we are in the fifth year of the conflict, is that, that it's good. The more people you have you know, documenting, the better it is for the later process, because you have more information to establish the wider truth. But the question is, and the problem that I have is that expectations of all these people have been raised above 
all uh, uh, that is uh, reasonable, uh, that everything they do is going to be admissible and used one day in a trial in ICC or some other court. And it isn't. Majority of the stuff that uh, they have collected, majority of the things that you find on the YouTube is not going to be a usable, admissible evidence in the international uh, court of law. It doesn't make it useless to the wider transitional justice process, but when you say, or when I speak to them in the comments, they say, you know, don't focus on it specifically thinking one day I will be sitting in a court and explain how I got this video and then I will be uh, um, uh, vindic uh, uh, vindicated somehow. You know, collected for the wider uh, good of the society, but they already uh, get angry and disappointed at the <coughs> very suggestion that not everything will be part of a litigation in a court of uh, law, which I see a uh, long way from today's date becoming a real problem, uh, not on for the wider society, but for these people who are already getting a bit fatigued by the conflict that is being ongoing uh, and has no end in sight. And very often, uh, they are young people, they are activists, they don't come uh, from the investigative uh, or um, uh, law enforcement backgrounds, and they expose themselves to the dangers, and indeed, very many of them get wounded or indeed killed uh, in order to obtain something that they don't know is not going to be utilized in the way that they hope it will. And that's then the third question that I would uh, like to ask, and it is how much damage are we introducing for the future of a society by, in a way, and maybe I sound, sound too cynical here, but we are focusing on this uh, uh, collecting evidence and criminal investigations by so many different uh, organizations in order from the international community perspective, in my opinion, opinion in order to uh, limit the accusations of standing idly by while the conflict go goes on. But obviously, you know, this, while good, and yes, in the future it will have some kind of a use, is not going to replace the actual intervention, be political, military, or diplomatic, that should be taking place. So, sorry, that's I took okay. a bit longer. No, that's Bye. okay, because <laughs> I know that I had to write his talk, so I gave, gave you a little extra time. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Norma, for the uh, very befitting introduction to what I'm going to talk about and for the excellent work you did at the ICTY. I'm the token lawyer on this planet, um, on this panel, not on this planet. <laughs> rather inflated ego to say on this planet. Um, so I'm going to speak about evidence and what is it that we look for as prosecutors, as defense lawyers, as judges. And I think what Norma said was very befitting to, to really speak about the difference between information and evidence and the two are not the same thing. Um, so I want to begin by situating this discussion uh, for the purposes of this panel in terms of the notion of journalistic preference. 
um, privilege. I've not slept much last night, I'm sorry. <laughs> Journalistic privilege, or what is known in English law as legal professional privilege. When should uh, the profession of a particular uh, uh, potential witness, in this particular case a journalist, uh, uh, have privilege against uh, testimony in light of the public interest uh, with respect to that particular profession not somehow being, being compromised. And of course the notion of journalistic privilege is very well recognized in domestic legal systems. Um, some of you may recall the famous case of Judith Miller recently in the United States who refused to testify uh, concerning a uh, CIA leak which related back to the weapons of uh, mass destruction uh, debacle uh, prior to the invasion of Iraq and um, she was held in contempt of court and served uh, prison time uh, as a journalist and she was willing to serve the prison time instead of compromising uh, her anonymous source and the worst part of the punishment is that she went from being a New York Times correspondent to a Fox News analyst, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, so the difference between information and evidence is really a question of quality. And with the uh, prevalence of uh, media activists, uh, citizen journalism, and I think your presentation really uh, set up this discussion very well, the amount of information that's available now uh, as opposed to even 1993 when the ICTY began its operations has really pro proliferated on an exponential scale. And a big part of the problem is obviously sifting through that information to see what is credible and what is not. <coughs> but there's a very big difference <coughs> between trying to determine what is credible from the point of view of uh, journalistic integrity, from the point of view of policy formulation, as opposed to gathering evidence. And although sometimes um, institutions such as the ICC have tried to follow the headlines to um, prepare indictments in real time uh, to try and somehow <clears throat> impact the situation on the ground, uh, the criminal justice system is slow. It is a slow, uh, cumbersome, uh, and, and costly uh, uh, procedure, and very often it will be many months, if not many years, after the crimes have occurred when an accused is finally uh, arrested and, and when the, the witnesses will be uh, scrutinized in some sort of a criminal procedure. So information from the criminal investigative and prosecutorial point of view is relevant as a way of finding leads. And the typical situation, as you have, uh, whether with respect to Bosnia or Rwanda or Darfur, is that there is typically a massive crime base. There are many incidents which one can investigate. This is not a kind of smoking gun scenario where it's sort of O.J. Simpson putting on the glove in the courtroom or that missing piece of DNA evidence which will conclusively prove who's responsible for a particular murder. We're typically dealing <coughs> with crimes against humanity, which by definition are widespread and systematic crimes. So the relevance of evidence, as I will explain further, has to be seen in, in, in that context. So information very often provides a lead to look into this or that situation. And 
I'm glad that you brought up the case of Ed Villamy, who's one of the outstanding uh, people that uh, in the summer of 1992 first exposed uh, the horrors of ethnic cleansing with that um, graphic photograph from Omar Scott. And the first cases um, before the ICTY were all from the Priador district where Omar Scott was situated. So very often uh, journalism and the provision of information or media reports provides a lead which then mobilizes resources to uh, conduct a proper investigation and to gather evidence that can withstand scrutiny in a judicial procedure. Now, evidence in the context of criminal law has to be understood in light of the burden of proof. In common law systems, the burden of proof uh, in a criminal trial is beyond a reasonable doubt. In uh, the French system, it's um, uh, called intimate conviction of the judge. But for the most part, uh, criminal trials have the highest possible burden of proof compared to, let's say, civil trials. So it's not sufficient simply to establish a prima facie or sort of whiff of suspicion test. And very often when we were doing our work in the ICTY or the ICTR for that matter or other cases I've been involved in, people will say, well, it's very obvious that these people are guilty, so what is taking you so long? And it, it's a very uh, a different question to uh, transform what is available in the form of media reports into evidence because one of the fundamental rights of the defendant is to challenge that evidence. And a skilled lawyer, especially in the context of uh, adversarial system which recognizes the right of cross-examination, which incidentally does not apply to continental systems, a good skilled lawyer can do a very convincing job of impugning the credibility of even the most persuasive witnesses. So it's against that uh, burden of proof and that qualitative requirement that one has to sift through mountains of leads in order then to find which are the most credible witnesses, how the testimony of different witnesses, witnesses relates to each other, does one corroborate the other, are there inconsistencies? Uh, there is a tremendous amount of meticulous work that goes into preparing uh, a case um, that will uh, establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And just by way of example, uh, the Berjanin case, which I'm going to discuss briefly today, which involved uh, Jonathan Randall, um, a Washington Post correspondent who invoked journalistic privilege, and that became uh, the landmark case on journalistic privilege in the ICTY. That case went on for 284 days, so 284 court days, and the prosecution called more than 200 witnesses, and I believe the defense called just 19 witnesses. So you can see the scale of uh, the trial and why uh, one has to choose targets very carefully, given the fact that there are very limited resources and very limited opportunities to actually prosecute anyone. And I would even say that the ICTY and ICTR are the notable <coughs> success stories if one contrasts the number of accused that were prosecuted with the ICC, which in more than a decade has not managed to even uh, prosecute a handful uh, of defendants. So the trials are costly, they are time-consuming, access to evidence involves all sorts of 
security risks, all sorts of very difficult judgment calls of trying even to understand the credibility of a witness who's speaking Kenya Rwanda, who's speaking Arabic, who's speaking Swahili. Uh, and on top of that, hoping that one day you will actually have a defendant in the dock um, who will have to answer to the evidence that you've gathered. Now, unlike common law <coughs> systems, which have very hyper-technical rules on admissibility of evidence, the international criminal tribunals have actually very few rules on evidence. And they follow the continental European model, which is called the free appreciation of evidence. Because you don't have a trial by jury that's susceptible to uh, being, um, I don't know, deceived one way or the other, professional judges uh, are deemed to have the ability to better understand what has probative value and what does not have probative value. So short of a confession that's extracted by torture or those questions of admissibility, all evidence is admissible before an international criminal tribunal. But of course, not all uh, evidence is equally probative and uh, witness testimony uh, tends to be crucial uh, in almost every case that uh, I can imagine, although forensic evidence, documentary evidence, and other forms of evidence uh, can also be, uh, of course, very important. Now, what type of issues um, could raise questions of journalistic privilege? I want to go back to this idea that when we're dealing with mass crimes, typically there is no smoking gun. And it's interesting that, on balance, it's easier to prosecute the big fish than it is to prosecute the small fish. And that's one of the paradoxes of criminal trials. When Dushko Tadic became the unwitting and unlikely first defendant before the ICTY, it so happened that the war was raging in the former Yugoslavia. There was no prospect of having a single defendant. We were even thinking about placing ads in the newspapers, wanted war crimes defendant. And it so happens that Dushko Tadic was in Munich and he was identified by some refugees from, from, the, from the former Yugoslavia, and he became the uh, unlikely first historic trial before the ICTY. Now, what is the problem with prosecuting a small fish like Dushko Tadic, who was basically a local thug that would uh, come into the camps, including Omar Skaf, from time to time uh, just to entertain himself with his friends? Uh, the problem is that the range of evidence that is relevant to implicating him is actually quite limited. Uh, given the fact that he was not in a position of command or control, you need to find uh, witnesses that can specifically place him in specific locations in relation to specific crimes at specific times. Uh, whereas someone who's in a position of uh, command, and I'm not speaking here about um, command responsibility as a doctrine, but the attribution of liability to those uh, who have uh, positions of military or, or political authority, given that the crime base is extensive, tends to be easier. Uh, because what you have is a case of uh, circumstantial inference of a criminal liability. And the typical defenses which are available to military commanders or political leaders relate either to knowledge of the crimes, uh, whether they were put on actual or constructive notice uh, of the fact that crimes were occurring, or questions of command and control, whether 
they had de facto control of those that were responsible for the crimes or whether they were simply in a position of uh, token leadership. So the crime base itself is less of a problem, typically, than uh, the question of attributing liability to a particular defendant. And attribution of liability is typically a separate question than the crime base. The uh, problem, once again, when it comes to uh, journalists, is how crucial, given the context that I've provided, uh, is the testimony of a journalist. Now, the idea of privilege, as I explained, is uh, commonly accepted in all uh, legal systems. By way of contrast, I want to speak about the two leading cases in the ICTY which dealt with the question of privilege. One of them, the Simich case, dealt with the privilege of the International Committee of the Red Cross. And the Berjanin case, uh, as I mentioned, related to journalistic privilege. And I think that both of these cases are very instructive in explaining what I think have been uh, the mistakes that have been made in the ICTY in being uh, a bit too uh, trigger happy in the prosecutor's office in calling this or that witness uh, when it is not absolutely crucial to do so. And that, in simple terms, uh, is the circumstance when journalistic privilege will not be uh, upheld by the court, where the uh, testimony or other information at the disposal of a journalist will be crucial to determining a question of guilt or innocence. We have to bear in mind that it's not just a question of guilt, it can also be a question of innocence. So the case of the ICRC in the Simich case, Simich was also dealing with um, Priador, I believe, mm -hmm. so many of these cases, and Berjanin was also in, in Priador, so many of these cases uh, dealt with the situation which Norma referred to earlier. In the Simich case, a former employee of the ICRC was called to testify as a prosecution witness. And he agreed, actually, to testify. There was no need to compel him, unlike Jonathan Randall, against whom a subpoena was issued by the trial chamber. But the ICRC invoked its privilege despite the fact that its former employee was willing voluntarily to testify. And of course, the ICRC's concern is the precedent that such testimony uh, would establish in terms of compromising the strict neutrality which it observes in the field. In that particular case, the ICRC uh, intervened, invoked its privilege, and the trial chamber gave the ICRC absolute privilege, not qualified privilege, which applies uh, most often, but absolute privilege. And I believe that the fact that the prosecution uh, was um, uh, not very cautious about whether it was necessary to call the ICRC, I think resulted in the courts going to the other extreme of giving absolute privilege, which I think is problematic, even in relation to the ICRC. It's interesting that among the three judges uh, in that uh, trial chamber, the majority, two judges, uh, believe that under the Geneva Conventions, the ICRC should have absolute privilege. We need to say you can never compel the testimony 
of an existing or former ICRC employee under any circumstances that is entirely at the discretion of the ICRC to, to make that decision. Whereas uh, Judge Hunt, the Australian judge in that trial chamber, wrote a concurring opinion which agreed that in that particular case um, privilege should apply, but that like other forms of privilege, there should always be a balancing of interests. Uh, one interest being not to compromise the neutrality of the ICRC, but the other interest being the effective administration of criminal justice. And it's interesting that under Rule 97 of the ICC Rules of uh, Procedure and Evidence, the ICRC now has um, absolute privilege before the ICC as well, and it's now actually been incorporated in the ICC Rules of Procedure. And those of you that are familiar with the history of the ICRC in particular in relation to the uh, Holocaust and the question of what did the ICRC know that it did not divulge and whether um, not disclosing that information was justified in view of what little assistance actually was administered by the ICRC in many of the concentration camps, that is a whole um, uh, other debate. But in relation to journalistic privilege, uh, there is only uh, a qualified privilege and not an absolute privilege. In Berjanin, um, Jonathan Randall, uh, a dear friend of mine, one of those that was uh, in the former Yugoslavia very early on in the, in the conflict and uh, who was a man of extraordinary uh, energy. I don't know how old is Jonathan now. He must be in his 80s. 80s. He was in his 50s. That yes, but he was a man that was rumored to have slept on occasion, but I never uh, uh, <laughs> believed those rumors. But he was a man of extraordinary energy that crisscrossed the former Yugoslavia and, and um, managed to conduct the most extraordinary interviews under very perilous circumstances. And that made him, of course, a very attractive witness. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Berjanin, who was a quite significant figure uh, in the Priodor uh, region of, of Bosnia, uh, Jonathan had written a story in the Washington Post which referred to some highly incriminating statements made by Berjanin where he openly spoke about ethnic cleansing. He basically said that, you know, we have to expel all of the uh, non-Serbs and uh, people are free to leave if they want to leave. If not, we will force them to leave. And it was one of those very uh, compelling uh, statements. And when Jonathan Randall refused to testify, and his testimony was merely to uh, confirm the, um, uh, the story that, that had already been published. So there was no question of disclosing the identity of anonymous witnesses. It was merely a question of him appearing in court to lend credence to a story that was already in the public domain. And the trial chamber issued a subpoena Jonathan Randall appeared only to invoke privilege. The trial chamber held that he could not invoke the privilege because the material was already in the public domain. There was then an interlocutory appeal to the appeals chamber, and in 2002, the appeals chamber of the ICTY upheld his privilege. And the reasoning is interesting, and maybe I'll just speak a bit about the reasoning before um, ending my uh, comments. The trial chamber's reasoning was that privilege may be relevant where you have anonymous sources, for example, that you don't want to compromise, but where you're merely asked to testify 
to verify a story that is already in the, in the public domain, then there is no logic to invoking journalistic privilege. The appeals chamber had a very different reasoning in upholding the privilege of Jonathan Randall. Um, first, the appeals chamber recognized that there is a public interest in not compromising, in effect, the neutrality of journalists, exactly what you were referring to, to allow them to conduct interviews um, without creating a situation where anything that is divulged to them could potentially uh, be used uh, against the person granting the interview in judicial proceedings. The appeals chamber, however, narrowed the notion of journalistic privilege to what I would call the, the privilege of war correspondence. And the court made a distinction between journalists in general and war correspondents in, general, in, in particular, given the specific circumstances that they uh, uh, face in uh, trying to cover um, armed conflicts. Second, the appeals chamber held that in this particular case, the testimony of Jonathan Randall was by no means crucial. And it was not sufficient as the trial chamber had held that his testimony was merely pertinent. That was the standard the trial chamber had um, espoused. That the standard of pertinence was substituted by the, sta by the standard that the testimony must be crucial and must not be available through any other means. So a much more uh, stringent test. And on that ground, the privilege of uh, Jonathan Randall was upheld. So just by way of summary, um, I'm more, I, I believe, on the journalist's side here, even though I'm the lawyer on the panel. And uh, I know that we're supposed to have a debate here, but I actually think that the prosecutor's office um, has, um, on more than one occasion, made the mistake of um, what I call sort of cowboy investigative techniques, where one uh, calls uh, witnesses without actually uh, considering carefully how those witnesses could be compromised in the discharge uh, of their work, whether it's the ICRC, whether it's a journalist, humanitarian workers. Um, and very often, it's the star quality of a witness, such as Jonathan Randall, um, which um, attracts, uh, makes him an attractive witness. Uh, and my sense is that it will be very, very rare, given the context of mass crimes, that a journalist or an ICRC worker uh, will be, if you like, the smoking gun equivalent of the witness on whom the entire question of guilt or innocence uh, revolves. And we may um, uh, achieve much more in the long term by strictly separating the judicial function and the journalistic function. So I will stop there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I see on the schedule we're going to break at 5 o'clock, which we will do, unless we break earlier. Are there any questions, comments, reactions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. Um, touching on basically I think all of your points on the issue of uh, witnesses and focusing on the Kenyatta trial at the ICC, which was ultimately I think, thrown out due to the uh, witnesses recanting. Um, the suspicion now, of course, was that the witnesses were somewhat interfered with. 
With regards to the uh, app that you mentioned, Alan, is there a, a fear that perhaps with the rise of spying nation states, um, spying on their own individuals, that the, it could actually become an incriminating factor, that people could be targeted? Um, as with genocide, we have race, ethnicity, or something like that. This could be a targeting factor. That if the state was to find some people's phone, uh, it could actually lead to unintended consequences um, with this new age of, of reporting. Want me to answer? Should Why not? We? Oh, yeah, I can just answer that really quickly. Um, yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's already happening where people are, you know, phone, your phone is, if you're um, a human rights worker, often the first thing that's taken is your phone because it has evidence on it, it has your contact list, etc. So actually um, what um, people, technologists in the human rights space are trying to do is to create ways to disguise these apps. Um, also ways where you can secretly activate, sort of, like Amnesty has a panic button. You can activate it and sort of sends a message that you've, you're, you're in trouble, and also tells your contacts they've got to start protecting themselves. Um, and we see that with um, uh, the use of social media um, in you know, situations in the Arab Spring, where suddenly what was seen as this tool for mobilization around freedom, when things turn against you, is actually an archive of everyone who's participated in these um, uprisings. So this is definitely a danger. Um, and I think one of the big challenges here is um, it, that should go hand in hand with use of these tools. And I think any human rights technologist will say this to you: is that you need to be um, ensuring that, that digital literacy is part of the package, not just adopting yeah. the technology, but teaching about the risks. Because the concern is Edward Snowden you know, did his release, but he only evaded people kept tracking down because he was such an expert. That people right. are people in the field. Yeah, you know, that's that concern that they're going to get caught up in it. I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, please. Hi, Nikki Palmer from King's College. Thanks to all the panelists. I really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, I've got a question around witness protection. Um, and I suppose it goes to Ella first. And it was around the people who are posting these YouTubes when we're going through this verification process. And also, I mean, with the, with the very interesting informed cam that you showed us more at the end. It seems that it also makes the identification of those people uh, easier. And are those people then vulnerable? Because as we've seen with the ICTR, the ICTY, and now the ICC, witness protection has actually been a major issue, particularly if you're, if you're so dependent on eyewitness testimony. So I, I would be interested in, in all the panelists' views on that, but Anna, particularly mm. on that question around increasing the verification right to the intention with ensuring the safety of those individuals. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I, okay. Um, I, yes, and that, I think, connects um, to, the, to the previous question. And I think what, what I'm really interested in are apps that are moving in the direction of not needing identification for verification. And I think there's the risk and security side to that. Um, and again, this is not, you know, I think what you guys talked about was so interesting, and, and part of this is around um, what is the information being used for. So if it's being used as an indication of mass atrocities, that's one thing. If it's being used as this happened exactly to this person then and there, that's another thing. But there, um, there's another app that just came out called Eyewitness, and it's um, the International Bar Association is one of the partners involved there. And the, their point is that you, you, they can create such a secure channel of communication with their app that you don't need to know the person to know that it hasn't been tampered with and that it came from their phone. And I think there's this interest on the security side. I'm interested in it on, in terms of an equality side of the equality being listened to. And if you take identity out of that equation, it also makes the, the playing field more level in terms of people who want to get access and get heard. Thank you. This is one from right here. Um, 
just a point uh, uh, I am to come back to this issue of journalism, journalistic material as evidence. It runs back to the beginning of transitional justice in the Eichmann trial. I remind you that, that the, the panel at the time under Justice Landau refused to accept the sus and tapes of Eichmann, which in 2011 were re reconfigured to in fact show that he, the Khanar had got it wrong in that sense, that he was indeed premeditating this thing well done. The tribunal at the time, because it was strictly interested in evidence, refused to accept the entire thing on the ground that it was journalistic material. Evidence must come from the SS archives or other documents that the prosecution had. The journalistic material in and of itself was inadmissible. It's very interesting that that perspective that it comes already from the beginning of the study. It's a good point, and perhaps that's what distinguishes the Nazi trials from almost every other trial that I'm familiar with, the overwhelming wealth of documentary evidence, which made the job so easy. Um, and, and we don't have that. We don't have that in Syria, in Rwanda, in former Yugoslavia. Um, that's why witness testimony becomes that much more important. And it's extraordinary how meticulously these crimes were documented. Uh, in the case of Eichmann, yeah. the train schedules, the number of the quota of those <coughs> that had to be deported, and, and this, there was that moment, of course, where Eichmann proudly spoke about how well he did his job and he made sure all the trains ran on time. And so I'm just wondering if Justice Landa would have decided differently if there wasn't that wealth of documentary evidence before the court. Speculation, but I think... I remind you that Ben-Gurion was, I mean, almost, well, he couldn't dim, um, demise him out because that, that was not possible. But the level of anger at the court's insistence on having a sort of classical criminal trial, a la Rechtsstaat, almost a German trial, I think, um, was something that drove Ben-Gurion absolutely mad. Okay, we've got one in the back. Thank you. I'll stand up because otherwise maybe my voice doesn't work very well. Um, I wanted to thank all of you for the really interesting presentations coming at you know these issues from different angles, but uh, I think all having very good central elements. Uh, I wanted to highlight two things. I think Kanye quite right in the cases today approved with witnesses, uh, and there is no smoking art. Uh, these crimes are not being hidden. I mean, they're being carried out in public. They're widespread. They're systematic. Uh, and I think so, that you're right, that the question that the prosecutor has to be asking is, do I need to call this journalist as a witness? And it comes down to whether the investigations are done properly. Um, I think if you're doing small investigations of, of uh, individuals, rather than having a look at the crime base and seeing what information you have and then piecing together who's responsible, you do run into the problem where you have less information that you can use as evidence. I think that's one of the problems we saw in the Kenyatta case. Um, so I think it's it's a question for the prosecution. I don't think it ever should have got to the, to the chambers uh, about whether this particular journalist should have been called. Uh, and the question is, when would you ever need to call a specific witness? Uh, and I think it's, it's quite right that it's only if you, if that particular witness saw somebody be killed or saw something happen. So I think that that's something that needs to be explored more perhaps with investigators with the Office of the Prosecutor and with journalists sitting together and saying, well, what would be a reasonable uh, reason to have to call the journalist? 
So I guess I wanted to get you, your opinion on that. I'm not a journalist, so I don't know the, uh, the ins and outs, let's say, for the the other thing I just really wanted to highlight quickly is something that's come up a couple of times, and let me particularly mentioned it, uh, in terms of risk management and uh, the expectations also that need to be managed uh, by people who are taking you know, pictures with their, with their smartphones and uploading them and hoping that these are somehow going to be used in some kind of accountability process. Uh, and the need to, to manage their expectations about what's likely to happen but I think more importantly, the need to ensure that they are safe uh, and that, that they have the tools to keep themselves safe, both uh, digitally and physically. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked when we talk about standards or guidelines, you know, teaching people how to preserve metadata or upload it somewhere. Uh, I think the safety and security of people often gets lost. And I think that's something that really needs to be highlighted, um, and particularly also for journalists who are often in I'd like to just uh, see if we have any other questions or comments. Um, yes. yes. Um, well, thank you for the presentation. Uh, I was, uh, well, there is the, the exception you mentioned with the RCRC not to testify and to a lesser extent to work correspondence. Um, but I guess uh, there are a number of different professions who also want to claim some uh, exceptions. I'm thinking about translators, who very much, uh, very often, know a lot about what's happening between uh, warlords or uh, other humanitarian organizations or doctors. Uh, how do the courts uh, apprehend that situation? Um, and one more right here, and then we'll be, we'll be done with the questions. Yeah, um, I was wondering if we can bring the three presentations together to because none of you have said a little bit what's the way forward in terms of trying to find evidence uh, for um, mass atrocities accountability. I've done shorter stints in media. I've used open source for um, documenting human rights abuses. And I also work in international tribunals. And um, I don't really know how we can puzzle everything together. Um, I work now for a number of humanitarian organizations. And I know very well the case of ICRC, because um, I come across with these problems a lot with MSF. I uh, work with risk managers and we negotiate humanitarian access, so we have organizations in the front lines that have information that could be very valuable in the future. And I managed once to put together the prosecution of the ICC and these humanitarian organizations, and I thought I almost, it almost got me fired, I think. <laughs> um, it wasn't very well received, at least from the part of humanitarian organizations. So my question is, how can we make this work? Um, like from the point of view of um, collecting evidence and make it useful in court and authenticate it, verify it. Is there a way forward? Is maybe the, the work of the Commission of International Justice and Accountability that they are self-exiled people and know what they are doing? Or um, how, how can we move forward so we all work for, for, for the same boss, let's say? Okay, in the next five minutes, we're just going to go right down our row here. If people can react, and then we're going to be done exactly at 5 o'clock, if not sooner. <laughs> Okay. Go ahead. You want to? Go ahead. Oh. Oh, me? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, I'll try and touch uh, upon each one of them. I think there is an issue, and I'm not sh correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the way uh, I see it. This is the focus on witnesses and, uh, and how much you can, how many witnesses you need in a trial. 
And something that we are looking into now in the organization that I work for now is if, if you're trying to hold high-ranking leaders responsible, especially ones who are 400 to 1,000 to 2,000 kilometers away from the crime scene, then your victims from the crime scene are not your direct link to the responsibility of that individual who's standing so far away. And that's why I think the field of the documentation, the documents, and the inside the witnesses are the actual key that you need if you want to focus on your highest ranking uh, individuals. Uh, witness uh, as in victim testimony or the crime scene testimony, I think in the later years of the tribunal played a much uh, lesser role. It played a much bigger role in the first trials because at that time the tribunal's investigators didn't have access to the archives and the documentation that they managed to amass after the regime changes, after Tuchman died in Croatia, after Milosevic was overthrown, etc., etc. So, you know, then you had much more paper-heavy and uh, paper-led uh, uh, cases. So uh, that's one point I wanted to make. With the you have about 30 seconds. Okay, <laughs> okay, way forward in 30 seconds. You can take um, like. I think, what, what's the way, uh, way forward? I think uh, uh, something you said in your concluding remarks, why do, why do, we ha why do journalists have to uh, do their job with a view of playing a part in the criminal investigation at a future point. I think if I went back to journalism, I would continue doing my job as a journalist the way I was taught that field should work. And if I've done it correctly, it will play a role in a future criminal uh, 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 trial, should that trial come uh, to being. But I will not approach my job by saying, oh, who might be put on trial in 20 years' time, therefore let me, let me collect that sentence. So I think, yes, there should be space for cooperation between these two institutions, but let's not mix them, uh, uh, or, or fields of professions, but uh, let's not start mixing them up too much. Okay, one minute. Um, well, the question of privilege is very good. I've not heard of a translator's privilege, but obviously there are privileges solicitor-client privilege, uh, the privilege uh, of uh, psychotherapists, and different legal systems recognize different privileges. And I think in each instance it's a question of showing whether there's a public interest to give a specific profession privilege, and the non-disclosure of information has to be rationally related to what that profession entails and how it would compromise uh, that profession's sort of ability to discharge its tasks. Um, I agree very much with Norma that w very often, the, I would say most often, the most important witnesses are the insiders. They are by far the best. Drajaner Demovich, uh, that not enough people speak about him. I think he's one of the most significant figures in the history of ICTY. He was the only witness to Srebrenica. All the victims were executed. Time's up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm serious. No. That's fine. Should we give, should we give another 30 seconds? Yes. Okay. I charge by the hour. So <laughs> but we, do, we do have a schedule, and I want to keep our schedule. Of course. So of course. No, no, no. I don't have uh, much more to say, but I, I do want to just say one quick thing, that um, the panel is about uh, sort of journalists' privilege and evidence gathering. And... I think that evidence gathering of obviously is very important. It depends very often on the political will of countries directly concerned that ultimately have to provide witness protection and access and a whole lot of other things. 
But I believe that the biggest problem is not evidence gathering. The biggest problem is the uh, indifference of the world community and the fact that uh, war coverage has now become essentially a form of entertainment interspersed between Hollywood gossip and the sports news. And my biggest concern is, is just the lack of political will. Um, the evidence is a secondary problem, I would say. Okay, thanks. Um, in terms of the the way forward, I'm going to address that with respect to the volume problem, which is that you know this, this is what someone said about Syria, journalists said about Syria. Is that there's a big data problem, which is the volume of this stuff, right? So, what's the way forward to dealing with this? I think one of the things that, that this highlights for me, and I think we've sort of come back around to this, <coughs> this euphoria around sort of the ability to kind of all speak and witness online, is the importance of gatekeepers. So I think that the you know gatekeepers who, who are experts in assessing information, this kind of work um, that I'm doing highlights to me how important it is to support the gatekeepers. Um, but how can we support the gatekeepers? There's two ways. Um, one is machine and one is human. So you have technologies that can make this processing faster, um, which like the one I talked about, but you also have um, human ways of contributing, and I don't know if this is what you're talking about when you mentioned your previous work, but there are ways to kind of crowdsource um, uh, looking at digital evidence, so picking it apart into small pieces, asking people to look for things like tanks or whatever, um, which is being experimented with, um, which I think is could be you know, quite a useful resource. And um, there's a scholar, a legal scholar called Molly Land who writes about this, and she's talking about how um, digital um, sort of technologies are actually allowing us to gain pluralism, not only in terms of who can provide evidence, but in also in terms of who can be involved in fact-finding. Getting back to your question about political will and thinking actually about public will, um, her, her view is that this is a very good way of engaging publics in human rights is to actually involve them in the processes by which information turns into evidence. Thank you. Thank our panelists, please. Thank you for keeping them up. I just want to announce a very uh, small change in the schedule now because you had a lot to absorb and I'm sure you're a bit tired now. So we're going to do a coffee break now instead of the breakout session. And then we will move at 5.15 into the next panel, Media and Divided Societies. And after the panel, we are going to do a bit of more of an extended breakout session where we will try to cover both what was said in the evidence panel, but also with the Media and Divided Societies. I'm sure there are very interesting languages there. Yes. Uh, so please get your well-deserved coffee. What do I do? What do I do? Just put your name in your file and that's not about it. Especially for the podcast. But if you have issues with it, please send me your last one as well. And I can put in the rest if you just uh, talk to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just basically so we, we're allowed to put the podcast on the website. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah
Thank you. It resonates so much. Uh, yeah. That's it. Just that. You can take the lawyer. Yeah. The lawyer takes the dinner. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the lawyer takes it, but then, but then, you know, he signed it before he read it. I know. So. I know exactly. That's, that's, what I, that's what I'm trying to describe. The speaker's like, yeah, just sign it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sign it. And, uh, yeah. That was really good. I love it. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's um, remarkable the, the whole the, the self restraint of Landa given his uh, personal history. Now, you know what happened with the Sassen? In 2011, the entire Sassen, which was departed in different parts of the world, was reassembled in Hamburg. And the entire transcript. He was Wilhelm Sassen, is the father of Saskia Sassen, of the famous globalist. And the entire interviews were reassembled and proven that Eichmann had intended back in 1932. Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, refutes Hannah Arendt's argument of Eichmann in Jerusalem. just a kind of unwitting Voilà. But it is amazing that, nevertheless, Landau refused. And it was not only Landau, all he does is say, Legally and procedurally. I used to read you a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, right. You're not so bad. Uh, no, I'm in Geneva. I see. Are you based? Well, What did you leave uh, Abyss in war? In what year? I was there uh, from '94 to. And I was with Tadeusz Mazowiecki uh, 92 to 94, and with the CSC 92. So I was, yeah. There is something I would like to ask you, which is, I was, do you want to go and we yeah, have a. Sure. Yeah? You always aware? When you publish, they have a lot of current examination. You know, everything that the media and, and you, you have to put all of this into perspective. So, I mean, one story might be really interesting to just kind of corroborate. I'm going to focus on the third case where I have lots of apparent you know, information. Yeah. Yeah. And then the problem is, yeah, and then with serious, I mean, the stuff we collected, if it's not used in the material, uh, 
The point you made, or the point you your colleague made about you know, I mean, the lack of political will, and I think you made, I don't know who made the point that it's a way for the West basically, you know, to say, okay, we're actually doing something, although we're not really doing something. Yeah. The individuals do the right thing, you know? Because, like, you know, guys, you take all the risks, go die for me to make a nice picture. You know, but we might not even Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so reckless. But they are, you know, the people who decide that's the focus of the funding and the development. I know the people who work in the, <laughs> in the criminal justice system. 